1: Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of um, speaking once again with Dr. Brenda Beck, who's adjunct professor in anthropology um, at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. Brenda, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Nice to see you, Raj.
1: Nice to see you once again. And um, for those who may have caught your last interview, you were talking about a fascinating story that has that has quite gripped you, that you've continued working on since then. So the publication that we're going to focus on, although I think we'll just feature your work in general these days, we'll sort of take the temperature of where you're at and and, and what you've been up to. But we will primarily focus on, for the purposes of the podcast, uh, on, on a brand new publication called Hidden Paradigms, Comparing Epic Themes, Characters and Plot Structures, um, so tell us a bit about the backstory of this book.
0: Well, the backstory began in 1964, when I went to do two years of uh, doctoral fieldwork in a what was at the time a fairly remote village a, in Tamil Nadu, South India. And we didn't have video cameras at that time, but I did take a tape recorder thinking that I might find something to tape record. I didn't really have a plan. And uh, not very long after I got there, I got there around November, uh, there was a full moon, I think it was January or February of 65. And I heard this marvelous drumming. And so I turned to the woman I lived with, uh, my cook and companion, and I said, what's that? And she said oh come with me to the village square I'll show you what's happening so we went together and there was two singers with a whole crowd of people around listening and they were obviously telling a story and my Tamil wasn't very good at the time but I was trying and so I thought gosh Maybe this is an opportunity to use my tape recorder. And if I record the story, then later I can go back and I learn some Tamil by studying it and I'll also learn the story. So I asked my companion to get the tape recorder. And meanwhile, I asked the two singers, may I have permission to tape your story? And they didn't really know what a tape recorder was, so I had to show them. And then they said, yes, that." would be wonderful, we'd be delighted. And then they asked me, what story would you like me to tell? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know your stories. And so I turned to the audience and I said, what story would you like these two gentlemen to tell? And they said, "The which means the elder brother story. Well, I had no idea what the story was about. I thought maybe a 20 minute story, half an hour story. I was fine, I had enough tape. So uh, the bards said yes, and they started to sing, not telling me anything about what to expect. And they went on for two hours. And then they said, well, that's enough for tonight. We'll come back and we'll continue the story tomorrow. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? It was very difficult to get batteries at that time. And the village was still unelectrified, though it, they had started, they had run on electrical feed line down the road. And lo and behold, as you know, the gods were on my side, uh, this man appeared and he said, hey, I can help. I can get you an illegal wire feed from this electrical line on the road. Of course it was illegal, but nobody seemed to care. <laughs> and I thought, what a blessing because I don't have enough batteries to carry on. And thank goodness he did that because it went on for about 18 nights. And every night they'd sing about two hours and then they'd say, we'd come back again. I, oh, my goodness, what a story. Turned out to be an epic. And I've worked on it ever since, which is now, what, almost 60 years. And I've just, it's become a treasure trove. I had no idea how enlightening and interesting and rich this story would be. And so I've continued, it's kind of like going on a treasure hunt. And (laughs) I don't have a very good map, just a couple of hints, but every time I turn over a stone or look at something, I discover new ideas. And it's become very, very uh, much a part of me and also very useful for teaching. And so in writing the hidden paradigms and also publishing, now the the full text of the story, uh, I've created, I hope, a set of two books which can be used both in high school classrooms for literature teaching to show that there's, you know, interesting literature from other cultures beyond uh, North America and Europe if the teachers are teaching, you know, the classic uh, epics of uh, Europe. And then I thought, Really, this is also going to be very useful at the university level for people who are either teaching about India, because it's so full of insights, you can use it as a foundation stone for teaching just about any aspect of Indian uh, religious thinking, or to some extent, social thinking as well. So I want those who are listening to understand that it's very easy to access the text of the story and not just the analysis that i provide in hidden paradigms
1: so many many themes come to mind as i hear you speak Um, 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 uh, one is that we we have so many advantages and conveniences that we take for granted insofar as we can whip out our smartphone and and capture a moment visually or or in terms of audio take a video and back in those days uh the the, the tape recorder was high tech (laughs) Absolutely. And so you you were you were uh, it seemed that um, uh, as you say the gods were on your side and it was fortuitous that you took your tape recorder. What would have happened had you not had your tape recorder? (laughs) That's incredible. And then um, and then I can
0: I can answer that uh, to some extent because I found after I had the tape recording I thought, gosh, this could be really important. I better not scrub the tapes and go back and forth you know trying to catch every word and so i thought maybe i could ask the lead singer to come and dictate the story and i my assistant though he wasn't very highly educated he was able to write and i said we'll get my assistant to write it down as he dictates it slowly and he agreed to do that and I paid him something to come. It took him a number of nights, of course, to dictate it. And he had to do it slowly because the scribe couldn't keep up with uh, his speaking at the normal speed. So I actually have two versions of the story. The first one, which is tape recorded, is the performance version. And the second version is the dictated version. And it is that it turned out that the dictated version is a lot easier to deal with, and it's a better structured because the Bard, you know, sat down and, and thought about it as he told it. Um, and so I've used the dictated version for much of my study and analysis. But I should say that both versions are archived in several archives now. Uh, one uh, at the American Institute of Indian Studies in gurgaon and then also at the University of Toronto and at the um, Smithsonian uh, Institution in Washington. So the originals are there, but the main point I wanna make is I had a wonderful surprise just a few weeks back, a musician, a Tamil musician who's studying for a doctorate in the University of California Uh, has elected to go to Gurgaon and listen to the performance tapes in full and provide an analysis of the rhythms and the songs uh, of the story. And I'm just delighted because I know that the rhythms of the songs were so important as I listened to the story. It, It was the songs that to me who couldn't understand everything that was being said it brought the story to life and from the songs because you could feel the emotion in the songs i could tell you know i could tell if it was a lullaby putting a baby to sleep or if it was horses running you could practically hear the hooves knocking against the stones in the song where the the horses were running and on each song has that kind of quality. And I just yearn for <laughs> someone who is musically far, far more knowledgeable than I am to be able to express and talk about how these two bards who work together as a team, how they used rhythms. And they had just two very simple instruments were, which were the classical instruments of a bard. One is a little hand drum uh, that you just hold in one hand and you squeeze. It to change the tone of the skin that you're uh, tapping as you produce the sounds. And the other was a pair of finger, little brass finger symbols that made a ting-ting sound. That's all there was, but they used them brilliantly, and they just provided a marvelous amount of emotion. This, this um, musician has a, a fellowship to do this work, and I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what he comes up with.
1: I can't resist asking this question and then we'll dive into the book, but tell us a bit about the role of the bard, the function of the bard, uh, whether they're trained, whether it's uh, all, is it, it, whether they ad-lib, whether it's uh, sort of, is it scripted? Do we know anything about that, the function in this context?
0: And uh, it's, it's all of the above. This is an oral story. It, has never been written down in anything like the fullness that I have now provided. Uh, there were a few small palm leaf versions that we have captured a little bit of the story uh, that have been handed down from previous centuries. But it is basically, I would say, fully an oral tradition. But in India, because the tradition of memorizing is so strong, and the honor given to traditional stories is so great, these bards take it very seriously, and they study the story for years before they try to sing it themselves, and they apprentice to a senior bard who is like their guru, and they attend his performances, and they become like helpers, so the two bards that sang, one was the lead, the guru, and the other one was an advanced student. And they played a very nice role. The the, uh, uh, assistant will say, oh, really? Tell me more, oh, really? And he'll repeat the lines or ask questions and the bard will reply. So that also gives it a kind of a lively sense. And I would say, I think, though I don't really have evidence, the songs would be extremely well-preserved and they, they occur with the same lines and same epithets over and over in the story. The actual action and description of the story is a little uh, <clears throat> less fixed in terms of words, but it's fixed in the bard's head in terms of the sequence and the descriptions. and. I much later decided that I wanted to animate the story and tell it in animated form. The reason what inspired me was as the bards sang, they held up a, a, a oil um, kind of torch in front of the singers because this is not an electrified village. And the singer sang against the white um, temple wall. And so there were these wonderful black shadows that the singers created, you know, without even thinking of them or being aware of it, behind them on the temple wall as they sang. And I used to watch those shadows because they were very expressive and they helped me understand the story because you could tell when, you know, things got tense and, you know, the the shadows would express the, the concerns and the emotions. So I thought, Gee, I want to share this story. It's marvelous. Let me see if I can animate it. And so I looked around and I was extremely lucky. I found the grandson of one of these singers who actually was a young animator. He his father had wanted him to be an accountant because it was a poor family, but he hated accountant and he essentially ran away to Chennai and he said, "I don't care what my father wants. I want to animate and tell stories. And just to make this really clear, when he was a small boy in the village where he lived, uh, there was a mud near the front door of his small home. And he used to pour water on that mud and, and mix it and make little clay figurines. And he would bake them in the sun and then he would paint them with various colors, and then he would call all his friends, and he would tell stories by moving his characters around on a small stage that that he kind of envisioned in front of his house, so he was passionate about storytelling, and I managed to invite him to Canada, and I said, you know, I would love to have you come, and Helped me animate the story of course he didn't know English and it, it, it took some adjusting but he did a wonderful job because he had sat on his grandfather's knee and heard this story over and over and over again so it was already in his mind and all the images and you know background uh, themes and values and so on were already there in his mind it and was so-
1: internalized
0: Yes, internalized. And now, believe it or not, he's used this as a, you know, to go further, because he's always wanted to be an animator. And he's now working on, I think it's the third version of um, Avatar. Uh, He's in New Zealand at the the company headquarters. He's become a very much, uh, you know, in-demand animator. And I'm so proud to say that he started by working with me
1: you know irrespective of one's uh beliefs about this thing called life it seems uh it seems compelling to think that destiny's hand is at work with you and your yeah. your love affair with the story and 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 the 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 the, yeah. the 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 various levels of meaning this has for you and the connections that it has forged um uh so we will include a link in the podcast notes. There is a link in the podcast notes regarding uh, how to procure the animation. Um,
0: You can, can, the university of Toronto has been very generous and they put the entire 13 hours of animation on their website and you can access it free of charge. You just have to know the right address to go to. And so for teachers, I highly recommend kind of, using both the story as, as now printed and available as a text and using the animation because the animation gives you so much visual information. Uh, it's really helpful as a complement to the text. And also Mr. I should say from once we had the animation just by good luck, uh, I was advised that maybe we should do it in high def. Well, that was that was very cutting edge at the time, and I wasn't too sure, but I said, Oh, well, okay, you know, what the hell, let's try. But because we did it in high def, you can freeze frames, and the frames are very, very clear. So I've used a great many of the frames in the story for my eventual writings and publications, including many in hidden paradigms, because they help illustrate the story. So that's also available. Uh, in a graphic novel form, where you can access the individual frames easily, and what the library's put up on the web is not high def because it's that's you know just too big, too many. Uh, at least at the time we put it up, it was too big. But if you need a high definition image for some reason or other, you can contact me, and I'll be happy to supply it.
1: Fantastic. And just to clarify for the readers, in addition to those links available um, for the graphic novel etc in the podcast notes. Uh, there is a publication called Land of the Golden River that is the publication wherein one can access uh, the text in translation, whether for for pleasure or for teaching um, and and the, the text that the, the the publication that we're focusing on is hidden paradigms which offers analysis. So tell us hidden paradigms. Why that title?
0: Uh, I guess I've always been interested in trying to understand how things are framed and what the background themes and principles are that inspire a story and are also, of course, what one discovers as one studies a story. And so I wanted to bring some of those hidden paradigms out and I'm still discovering them, Raj. I, I, only in the last month or so, I've, I've had a new idea about an even deeper paradigm that I need to write about soon. So this story is, it's like a cornucopia. It just keeps giving and
1: well, giving. It's uh, the, the epic tale, sort of, you know, grand narratives. Yeah. I think all story on some level, but particularly, you know, mythological or epic stories, they're, um, they're Inexhaustibly rich, and and that's not a that's not a bug. That's a feature. They're they, they're crafted in such a way so as to fold in multiple layers of meaning, um, uh, and also in such a way that they can be applied in various contexts. I mean, that's the power of um, what I think of as mythological or epic storytelling. Um, uh, what is Is Hidden Paradigms arguing something? What would you say is the primary takeaway or argument of the book?
0: Well, uh, let's frame that slightly differently. What motivated me was a frustration that people didn't seem very interested in the story or very proud of it. And many people told me, oh, it's just an oral story. And actually, I had difficulty when trying to publish the text because the publishers Many academic publishers told me, ah, you know, we publish great texts. We publish things that are really important. This is some oral story from some village that's not worthy of us. So that gave me a passion (laughs) to show that this is a story worthy of great respect and much study. And so I wanted to show that it could stand shoulder to shoulder with the greatest of epics and stories in the world. And so in Hidden Paradigms, I compare it to the Mahabharata, which, of course, is one of the great stories of the world. I compare it with the Bible, which also is one of the great stories of the world. Uh, But I also wanted to include other comparisons that might be compelling. And the most obvious one uh, to me was the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the earliest recorded piece of epic literature in the world that we have access to and lo and behold the epic of Gilgamesh and this story of the golden river are very tightly connected there's a lot of relationships between the two and so I compare it with that and talk about the relationship to Mesopotamia and it has given me a lot of insight into how the folk traditions in this one area of South India, I'm not sure if it is really, uh, you know, translatable into all of Tamil Nadu, but in this area, there's so many little details that reference ancient Mesopotamia, the Sumerian times in Mesopotamia. And so I try to bring that out in a couple of my later chapters. And one of them, uh, in one of them, I compare the a uh, map of the stars, the constellations that were um, present in ancient Mesopotamian thought, at least according to one very um, uh, creative author who's uh, done a great job, Gavin White, of looking at the stars of ancient Mesopotamia. And lo and behold, there's a very interesting and uh, uh, informative match. This the Story does not match nearly as well with the nakshatras, which is the traditional Indian way of thinking about the stars, but it matches with ancient Mesopotamia. And in particular, a a great wild boar is very important in the story. And uh, he speaks, he he has many human characteristics, but I, I knew early on that he must also be a constellation because there are some ancient rock carvings from central India that show a wild boar standing on its nose. Well, no live boar would ever stand on its nose. And so I knew right there, that's an image of the boar in the sky where you can see a boar standing on its nose. And that is an important feature of this uh, star map of ancient Mesopotamia. And so from that, I thought, well, if the boar is there, then maybe some of the other characters are reflected there as well. And that also, of course, led me to look deeper into the story of Gilgamesh, which is a story from the same area and and same era of early Mesopotamian history. Uh, So that's a theme that's developed and which I hope as we get better archeology span and more information we'll learn, I think, that there was a lot of contact between ancient Mesopotamia and the west coast of South India. Why? Because the Tamil and the Malayalam uh, peoples were great sailors. They were traders, especially the Tamils. And so they had boats going back and forth with the major civilizational centers uh, to the north very early on. And it's not hard to get back and forth if you follow the monsoon winds because at one time of year, you can basically float north uh, with one monsoon season, and then you can float back the other way in the next season. So uh, I don't think they walked over land for, you know, <laughs> years to try to get there through the mud and the mountains and the jungles. I think they just floated down, and they they had a, a major uh, exchange going based on boat travel. And the, the some there's some recent DNA evidence that suggests that may be the case. I think mean, we need to do more research and more specific DNA studies to, I hope, uh, expand on that idea. So that's one of the, uh, I think, significant uh, kind of insights I've had from studying this story.
1: Well, this is without question a fascinating, if not. Earth shattering connection. I mean, this. So, what you're positing is that this story is quite ancient.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's lots of evidence. And I said I, I had a, a, a recent kind of uh, Gestalt uh, insight as well that has to do with the last, uh, the most uh, recent books of the Rig Veda. That's the book one and book 10 are later than the other books. And I see in the description of the Asvin twins in those two books, one and 10, uh, some very interesting parallels, uh, not just that they're twins as are the heroes in this story, but also they, they cure a woman who is infertile. And they, they do it very much as the heroine of the uh, Golden River story is cured uh, of her infertility. So I, I feel that there's and, and there's some ritual connections and so on as well. So I think there's another dimension there to be explored in the future.
1: Is there other um, is there other scholarship um, that conjectures a connection between ancient India and Mesopotamia? Um,
0: well. Yes, there have been some suggestions, and of course, the the Dravidian uh, scholars in particular are interested in uh, trying to show that uh, Tamil, or at least some proto-Dravidian language, was important very early on, and maybe re- linked to uh, the Sumerian language in, in ancient times. But that is a very uh, politically. Uh, uh, sort of uh, a hot topic right now and it's it's uh, contested by many northern scholars so uh, we have yet to see we, we haven't deciphered the indus valley script it's one of the only early scripts in the world that has not been deciphered because there's no rosetta stone so there's a uh, lots of debate as to whether it's uh, indo-european sanskrit related uh, language or possibly a Dravidian language. And there are well-known scholars arguing on both sides. I don't want to get into that hot topic right now.
1: We'll save that for another podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, what, would you, um, what changes would you like to see well, let me first say, you know, I, I I typically don't interrupt guests, but if I did, I would have interrupted to say, you know, I can really relate to folks wanting to dismiss folk narratives because, you know, this is the history of the study of the Puranas, although they have been written down and there is a textual tradition. It seems to me that, you know, one wonders whether or not the bardic traditions you've encountered may well shed light on the process of the composition of the the Sanskrit Puranas themselves. But the idea, it's it's a staggeringly different idea to have a text that was composed for someone to look at independently versus writings that are the residue of an organic oral culture right? And so it's a staggeringly different idea. And, and many times in teaching, whether typically uh, on retreats or uh, the, uh, the classes, depending if it's continuing studies, you know, I'll share stories, I'll, I'll tell stories, and then we'll interpret them. And 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 every once in a while, someone is really keen on the, the reference for the story. Where can they go find the story? And depending on the type of teaching I'm doing, I'll say, look, like the text is on the tongue. This, you, that is the story, <laughs> that you've just received the text, that was the text, right? And this is something that, that we have trouble um, really, particularly when we're trained, as we both are at the Western Academy, and, and obviously, you know, um, text is paramount without question. But it's really difficult, I think, to undo the internalization of, of of the value system of, you know, it's important if it's written down, it's real if it's written down, versus... So much is preserved in oral culture, and and also the other the, the other prejudice towards uh, folk traditions as naive or superstitious or unthinking, and yeah. and yet there's such they're, profound
0: they're yes,
1: but, but 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 what is but what it is is that it, in my experience looking at at at, at 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 you know the epics and puranas, um, uh, in various other you know oral culture stories, um, um. Uh, these narratives do the heavy lifting of philosophy, theology, culture, propagation of ideas, but in an unassuming manner that's accessible to people. Yes, and yes. I, I think, think it seems, warm. yeah, just so. I, if I were, if I, if I were in the habit of interrupting, I would have, I would have interrupted to, uh, to, to, to chime in to say that uh, perhaps. Um, Well, let me let me
0: interrupt you uh, to say to go back to your question about hidden paradigms, Uh, because to me uh, uh, the kind of paradigm that I'm looking at is basically a visual paradigm, and I think the way these bards remember and learn the stories is through uh, the scenes that they paint in their mind and the, the. story progresses from one scene to another with, with transition or movement between them. But the, the, the key elements, the key values, the key relationships are embedded in those scenes. And that's why I was so fortunate. And the work I did with this animator, uh, whose name is Ravi Chandran, uh, from South India, it has been so enriching for me because he has those scenes in his head. And I just gave him total freedom. You, you you know, design and paint the story the way you see it. And it, that has been like a added text for me, just going back and I continue to discover things in his animated version that tell me more about the story, things I've noticed now that I hadn't noticed 10 or 15 years ago.
1: You know, as I hear you speak about the sort of the visualization of the storyboard, if you will, what comes to mind is um uh, my first book, "The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth." It's a st- really it's my dissertation. It, it's a study of the Devi Mahatmya, uh, but really it's a study of the structure of the Devi Mahatmya, frame and all. And you know, for about 150 years, folks have been saying, Western scholars have been saying, "Look, it's a flimsy, flimsy frame. It was sort of stapled into the Markandeya Purana, sort of you know, willy nilly." And and there's no shortage of places in which this 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 revolutionary text could have been positioned whether in the mahabharata whether in another purana there must be a reason why it's here and in in tracking the structure it was discovered that um it's it's structured as a ring composition a very strong meaningful ring composition and we see ring compositions all over the ancient world and it seems to me that you know the 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 best conjecture I have at this point is that this was a tool for thinking about and remembering stories by visualizing um, the ring of the story. This wasn't a, let's write it this way. I mean, perhaps it's meaningful to the audience as well. If unconsciously, perhaps more so than consciously, perhaps consciously for those who are really paying attention to structure, or perhaps it's something that's, that's enjoyable about this to us, uh, this level of structure. But, it seems to me that perhaps the ring composition exists in the de- in texts like the Mahatmya as an aid to memorization.
0: That makes great sense to me, and I, I would also say uh, to me, you're using the word ring, R-I-N-G, correct? So it's a circle, basically.
1: Yeah, a chiasmus, yes. Yeah. So, 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 for example, um, the, there's a, say there are three parts, right? Or say there's five parts: there's A, B and then a thing in the middle, and then B prime and A prime. So the first one and the fifth one will relate to each other. The second one and the fourth one will relate to each other. There's parallelism between them. And then there is a, a, a midpoint, um, Mary Douglas. Uh, you know, in my view, she, she wrote a uh, she wrote a, a monograph, I think, called "Thinking in Circles" or something along those lines. In my view, she wrote that just so I could finish my dissertation properly. But anyhow, <laughs> it's like she she writes this work on ring composition, which is obviously you know Mary Douglas. Clearly, this is you know uh, off the beaten track of what she's accustomed to doing. It seems, but so insightful and i just had this instinct that the middle the middle episode is so so important in the text it's crucial it's the mehisha suramardini episode it's the most iconographically celebrated um moment of the goddess's career when she you know she slays Mahisha, when you know all decked out pinning him down the buffalo demon and this is the middle episode and i'm like this is really important this is in the middle for on purpose and then it dawned on me that yes this is center stage. And then what comes before mirrors what comes after after what comes before that mirror what comes after, you know? And so, um, I didn't that have a language makes, for it.
0: That makes yeah. great sense. And I think that uh, we could write something about the golden river story that would say the same thing. And particularly the, the idea of rebirth and the, the sequencing of generations, and each generation is a ring, if you like, that is the basic structure of the previous ring, but then something in the center of it is different. And I, I see the same thing with the Aspen twins who become the uh, heroes in this story. The, the theme of twins is repeated many times. It's also the theme of reflection, which I talk about quite a bit, that one character in this story, the key heroine of the farming community is reflected in the key heroine of the forest. And so you have the, uh, she's essentially twinned and and you have the contrast of the farm and the forest in in the pairing of these two powerful women. So you could say, raising it up a bit, that the idea of the twins is repeated over and over in Indian stories. There are Nakula and Sahadeva in the Mahabharata, for example. And each time there's, there's some change. They're, they're fresh, they're new, but they still follow the basic ideas embedded in the very early themes of twinship, which go way back to Mitra and Varuna in the very earliest Indo-European
1: traditions. Fascinating. So um, who's this book for? Who do you think would benefit from Hidden Paradigms?
0: Well, I think the most important audience from my perspective are teachers who are teaching about epic traditions or Indian traditions, and to sort of provide comparative material easily put that in their grasp so they don't have to go and do a whole lot of background research. They have, you know, if they're gonna give a class on, on this or that, they can just pull from the book and use it uh, as a jumping off point for uh, entering into the richness of this story. It also can be used by researchers, but I don't think that's uh, a going to be that useful until, Tool for researchers. It's more for teaching about Indian culture and traditions. And I should also say that the book that has the text, The Land of the Golden River, I worked with a, a very dedicated indexer who's developed a huge index, much bigger than the average index. And it has some very interesting features because normally you don't index a story, you index an analysis, but not the story. But now we have a story that's indexed so that any theme that you want to look up will hopefully be in the index or you at least get a a clue in the index as to where to find the related materials. And I'm hoping that the book will be used in that way by people who are researching any of a great number of themes, including the idea of a ring.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. We're coming fairly close to time for today, but I I wonder, was there, uh, I mean, I honestly get the sense that we can go on for two hours easily. Um, (laughs) But um, uh, we want to keep it within uh, within uh, focuses. We want to uh, sort of be mindful of people's time who are listening. But is there anything else about the book that you wanted to add for for those who might be interested in diving in?
0: I would add maybe two things. Uh, One is that the framework that I use for comparison is sort of unique. Um, and that is, yes, here we go. There are seven themes that I actually picked up from working with a North American indigenous cycle of the story of Nanabush, a wonderful book written about Nanabush that uses these ideas. Uh, roots, reclamation, resistance, resilience, relationships, reflection, and revelation. And I found that it, those are doors that can help somebody who's trying to get their feet on the ground dealing with two stories that, in terms of superficial content, seem very different. But if you ask, what are the roots? Where? What's the beginning? What's the you know? What's the cosmic foundation of the story? Uh, or if you ask, uh, for example, uh, the idea of rec- reclamation? How are people? using this to reclaim their past, to understand their past, and so on for the other themes, that can be a very rich way of entering the story. So those seven themes are featured in every comparison. But the other thing I I might say in terms of hidden paradigms, uh, there are two paradigms that I discussed towards the end of the book that I feel are, they sound very superficial, but they actually, if you explore them, they're very, very, enriching. One is the theme of the lotus, and it's significant that the key heroine in the story, her name is Tamarai, which means lotus. That's a clue (laughs) to the importance of the lotus as a deep, deep symbol and theme. And the other one is rain. And initially, when I read and listened to the story, i thought you know rain everybody has rain it's nothing new you know i kind of didn't pay much attention to it but as the years have passed and i've looked at the story in more depth i realized that the idea of rain which of course was related to the monsoon rains is very very important and it's the the beginning of the new cycle it refreshes and everything bursts into new life because it's been dried up by the heat and the um, drought that precedes the monsoon and so it's interesting that the key the hero the husband of the woman who's called lotus he is described as having this kind of rain in almost inside him everywhere he goes he takes the rain and it makes he makes it rain so it's a kind of a blessing that he can give to people he he cools them he refreshes them uh, by granting rain and and so he is in a sense a, a carrier or a bestower of rain uh, which is i think a very central symbol related to of course uh, refreshing and regrowing
1: fascinating um, i think we'll have to continue chatting after uh, we finish this podcast um <laughs> It goes without saying that you've had a um a, a rich, productive career engaging this um this profound story, this tale, this epic tale. So uh, when I typically end with this question, but uh perhaps it'll be it'll be evident in your case. So is this work that you'll be continuing? You know, what's what's next for you?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I've got this new idea and I can't wait to start uh, writing about it.
1: Fantastic. Well, uh, when that gets churned out into the world, uh, I know a guy who runs a podcast who would happily have you back on. (laughs) And I know who to Um, go to. (laughs) um, Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Raj. Thank you very much. For those listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Brenda Beck on um, a couple new publications, um, primarily on hidden paradigms, which offers um, a fascinating analysis of this, this profound um, 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 epic folk tale, The tale itself can be found in Land of the Golden River. We will include a link in the podcast notes for that publication, along with all the other references made here. Um, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating uh, <laughs> the importance and the power of folktales. Take care.